0: They told me to come up, you know, when when the video is over. I thought it was over, I'm sorry. Um, uh, You know, if the church doesn't have smooth production transition, what does it have? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, hi. Hi. Um, Today, uh, we're gonna be reading from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter six. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter six. We're gonna begin in verse 12. Paul says, "'Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body "'to make you obey its passions. "'Do not present your members to sin "'as instruments for unrighteousness, "'but present yourselves to God "'as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, if you've been with us over this last year, you know that what we've been doing is reading through the Bible together as a congregation, the entire Bible. And what we do each Sunday is we stop and we pause for a minute to consider one of the passages that we've read in the previous week. So two weeks ago, I talked about how God saves people with his saving call he he brings people to himself he he chooses them brings them into his family and then last week we talked about the judicial process that is necessary for that to occur namely justification by grace by the unfathomable love and grace of jesus christ he bore the penalty of sin that we deserved when he was crucified and conferred his own righteousness upon us so that we might be the beloved of god that was last week So those are the first two steps in our life with God in Jesus Christ. And today we talk about the third step of salvation that will stretch out through our entire lives until the day we lay our heads in the grave. And the name for that is sanctification. And sanctification answers the following question. If we have been called into God's family by grace and been justified in his sight, by grace, how are we to live in response to that reality? And the simple answer is, you, you live righteously. That's it, easy, sermon over, that's all I, that's all I have. But the, the answer is slightly more complicated than that. If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that that answer is true, but it's not sufficient. So let me just sum up the answer to that question, how shall we live, right here at the beginning of the sermon, and then we're gonna draw out the threads over the next few minutes together. So Paul's answer is this, how shall we live? Answer, we must present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness in the same way that Christ does. We must present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness in the same way that Christ does. Now, in order to understand this, let's look at it under three headings. Number one, in Christ, we are dead to sin. Number two, in Christ, we are alive to God. And then number three, let us live our lives according to those realities. And that's where we're headed, that's the map. So starting with number one, in Christ, we are dead to sin. Now, let's start with a question that Paul is going to answer in the rest of the passage, and we see it starting in chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to be, I only read three verses from chapter 6, but we're going to consider most of the chapter together today, so, you know, just, that's just for funsies, so you know where we're going. Um, So the question that Paul is going to answer, we see in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, now, it's a simple question, but it does need some context. Now, in chapter 5, the chapter right before the one we're looking at right now, Paul has been arguing that God imposed the law on humanity so that their sin would increase. I don't have time to explain all that, but that's what he says. And the reason he does that is so that they would be left without hope of saving themselves and therefore understand, like at a gut level, their need of a savior. Therefore, Paul argues, more sin provided the occasion for more grace from God, and thus more thanksgiving from those of us who he saved. So now that he has saved us, the natural question arises, like, if more sin commands more grace, and more grace magnifies God's goodness, should we just keep on sinning after we've been justified so God's kindness will like, be put on display for the world, even be more magnified than it is with less sin? And Paul's answer is plain. In verse two, he says, by no means. He says, if that's how you interpret the grace of God, then you've been deeply deceived. So, think of it this way. Um, Suppose a man has gambled away all that he has and then goes deeply into debt, and that debt is something that he can never rightly repay. And he does that so he can keep up the thrill of sitting at the card table and, and winning, but he often loses, which is why he's in debt. Now, at some point, the loan sharks demand repayment from him. The man can't repay, and they tell him that he must repay them on X date on pain of death. I don't know if that's really how it works, maybe that's just the movies, but like we're supposing. The truth is, it doesn't matter that he has been threatened with death because he has no way to pay that debt with or without the threat. But then a benevolent friend sees his plight, sees the man's trouble, pays the man's debt at great cost to himself in order to save his friend's life. Now at that point, two things have occurred. Number one, The man is free of the debt and probably very thankful to have his life back. Number two, the loan sharks are satisfied. Are loan sharks a real thing? Is that just a movie thing? Okay, whatever. We're supposing, now, how shall this man live in the light of the grace of his friend? What would we think if the man saw his salvation from death as permission to continue gambling and going further into debt with his debtors. Wouldn't that be a complete betrayal of the gift that his friend gave him? And that's essentially what Paul is trying to get us to see here. We who have been called by God and justified by his grace as a free gift have been ushered into a new reality. And therefore, we must live in that new reality. And so Paul continues his answer in verse two. He says, is is this how we should live? Keep sinning so that grace will abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, let's follow his reasoning. Paul says, we have died to sin. And what does that mean? Well, he says it in various different ways and it helps us understand it. So let's look at them all, a brief survey of this chapter, he says in verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Then verse five, we have been united with him in a death like his. And then verses six and seven, our old self was crucified with him in order, here's the purpose, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for, why? One who has died has been set free from sin. And then verse 11, so consequence of all of this, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. Okay, so when we were justified, and specifically in Paul's writing, when we were baptized, Paul explains that this mysterious reality was conferred upon us. Namely, that we died that day. But he says, not only did we die, we actually were baptized into Christ's death. By baptism, we died with Christ. We were united with him in his death. Now, why did we die with Christ? Paul's answer, so that the body of sin brought to nothing, and we will be free of our enslavement to sin. So think of it. If you physically die, it's a complete severing of all the ties that you had in this world. Like You're no longer accountable to the things which bound you in life, both the good and the bad. And why? Because we can't be accountable to anyone after that moment. The ties have been broken, and Paul is arguing that here in this life, before Jesus seized us with a great affection and brought us into his family, we were enslaved to sin. It was sin that directed our passions and our desires and told us how to conduct our lives. And we shook on it and agreed and did those very things and complied with those very demands. And surely someone will object and say, well, surely not every action is born out of sin. We're talking about those who are not Christians at this point, and what Paul is saying is, Every action outside of Christ is born of sin. And come on. Paul's answer is yes. Every action undertaken outside the grace of Christ and his service is rooted in sin. Now, you can't imagine that, I know that sounds bad, but you can't imagine that every Action, every sinful action creates chaos and destruction in the world. That's not what Paul is saying. Like someone who murders another person, yes. Like that, that person is acting as a slave to sin. And they're creating chaos in the world. That much is clear. But if the Bible is to be, to be believed, anyone who does good in this world, even people who do good, In this world, for any other purpose other than to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, the goodness of God Almighty, those people are also acting as people who are enslaved to sin because those people are performing those acts either to magnify themselves or have a feeling, the good feeling that is attended with altruism or whatever it is. Now, to be clear, like I'm Very grateful for people who do good in this world, even if they don't do it in service to Christ, because that means this world is a better place to live. But the root of those actions, Paul is trying to help us understand, is nevertheless sin. And so Paul tells us that when we were baptized into Christ, the relationship that we had with sin was severed. Whereas before Christ, sin was our overlord, directing our passions, our actions in accordance with its own goals. Now this profound break has occurred. We have died. We are no longer accountable to the desires of our previous ruler. That's what happened when God saved us. But here's where I tell you it's more complicated than that. Because in the very next chapter of Romans, chapter seven, Paul is going to show us that although we have died to sin, sin has not disappeared from our lives. In fact, Paul himself still wrestles deeply to be free of this indwelling sin that makes him do the very things he hates. So what's going on here? Well, if you've been reading the scriptures with us, you'll know that in many places and in many ways, God has shown us that we live simultaneously in two realities. We live in the already and we live in the not yet. This is, and this is throughout all of the scriptures, the already and the not yet. And let me just explain that very briefly. You see, if you'd been a Jew under the teaching of the Old Testament and that period of history, you would have conceived history in a consecutive line. History begins at creation, and it stretches all the way until the end of time, at which Messiah will come and will usher in the everlasting kingdom of God, in which there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more wars, and that will last on into eternity. That's the scope of history under the Old Testament. You begin a creation, and everything between creation and the becoming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord, remember here in that language? That's called this age. And then everything after Messiah, everything inside the everlasting kingdom of God, no wars, no pain, no death, everything, that's called the age to come. So there's this two age structure in the Old Testament, this age, the age to come, and it is separated by the coming of the Messiah. But when Jesus came, he made these really strange claims that complicated this timeline. He claimed that in his person and work in this age, that the age to come had arrived. And that, that confused all the very faithful Jews who were listening to him because in which they had been taught by the Old Testament in their understanding of time, if he's claiming to be the Messiah, then why in the world hasn't the age to come arrived? Death remains. Wars remain. The Romans still rule over us. Our enemies still triumph. How is it possible that the age to come is now because everything we've been taught is that when the age to come arrives, all shall be well. But what no one understood is that, yes, Jesus never said. In fact, he reaffirmed that the end of this age will come. That, that still stands. That, that time will end. That history will cease when the Messiah comes in power and glory to establish his kingdom on the earth and he will overturn all of his enemies and he will make everything right that has been made wrong and death will cease. All of that will happen at the end of history. He will come in power and glory. But what no one understood is that Christ came in the middle of history and no one expected Christ to come in the middle of history, not in great power, but in great weakness. And he said, I tell you a mystery. In my person and in my work, the age to come has arrived. Not in its fullness, which will come, but in part. It's a taste of the age to come. So that's a paradox that we have to deal with. Has the age to come arrived? Yes. Has the age to come arrived? Well, not yet. And so this has deep implications for our present relationship to sin. Coming back to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. Paul says that in Christ we have died and are therefore no longer responsible for carrying out the dictates and desires of sin. But at the same time, as we see in Romans 7, we are not yet free of sin because its remnants dwell within us and still make claims on our allegiance. And so in light of that complex reality, Paul tells us what we have to do in verse 11. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, that word consider, it's the same word in Greek, in which Paul was writing. Same word in Greek that Paul's been using to talk about our righteousness in Christ from the passage last week, when we were talking about justification. Is it like, another way to translate that word is reckoned. In Christ, we were reckoned righteous in God's sight through justification. You remember this? Or to say it another way, in Christ, God considers us righteous. And Paul says, that we who have been reckoned righteous have some reckoning of our own to do. We must reckon ourselves dead to sin. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. Now, sin does remain, yes, but it is not a necessary condition of our lives after we have been reckoned righteous. The fact that we are dead to sin then becomes an article of faith. We believe it because God says it. He's the one who said it was true. He was the one who said, when Christ died and you were baptized into his death, you died, therefore severing all relationship to the dominion and power of sin. And if we reckon ourselves dead to sin, then how does that affect the manner in which we live. And that brings us to point number two. In Christ, we are alive to God. Not only in Christ are we dead to sin, but an opposite reality has occurred. In Christ, we are alive to God. Now, up to this point, I've just been telling you half the story. Uh, yes, we're dead to sin, but there is life that emerges out of this death as well. We see it in Romans 6, verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. With respect to the kingdom of God, death is not an end of itself. Death is the threshold through which we pass into life. Now, that will certainly be true of our physical death, but Paul teaches us that it is true of our vicarious death Christ as well. When Christ died, we died with him. And when Christ was raised, we were raised with him as well. And again, this has happened already. But at the same time, it has not yet happened in all of its fullness. And so Christ's resurrection has broken into this age, broken into the lives of those who are justified by grace. And this reality has changed the purpose and the trajectory of our lives in this age. And the purpose is this, Paul says, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, do you see Paul's argument here? In Christ, we died to sin so that it no longer has dominion over us. But in Christ, we have also been resurrected so that we might live unto God. And Paul reiterates this reality just like its opposite in many ways as well throughout this chapter. So let's just look at it, starting in verse five. 4. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Skip to verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God." So even with, excuse me, even though the atoning death of Christ was magnificent and worthy of praise, we we love to talk about the crucifixion of Christ. We love to talk about his atoning death because of all that it accomplished for us. We love to talk about it and it's magnificent. It's worthy of praise. Death was not the end that God had in mind when he sent his son to dwell with us. Life was the end. Christ was resurrected unto life and ascended to the right hand of God where he sits to make intercession for his people. Our Lord who died for us was raised triumphant and now sits before the face of God in the seat of heavenly command, organizing his people and interceding on their behalf in order that he might bring the kingdom of God to bear on this world. That is the reality of Christ's life. There is never a moment in which Christ in his new life is not considering the will of the Father. There is never a moment when he is not executing the plan of his Father. And there is never a moment when he is not responsive to the desires of his Father. But then watch what Paul does next. Verse 11, he says, okay, that's what Christ is doing. That's how Christ lives. That is the character of his new life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I mean, I could barely breathe up here. Like the air is thin. We're on the heights, people. Are you feeling it? Oh, now Paul has just explained all of these truths about death to sin and life unto God with respect to Jesus Christ. And he says, this description belongs to you as well. (laughs) You must think of your life in the very same terms as we think of Christ and his new life. We're so used to thinking about Jesus Christ as other from us, beyond ourselves, high and lifted up, and to be clear, we're not wrong to think that. That's absolutely true. But Paul is drawing an equivalence between our life and Christ's life that is almost beyond belief. Just as Christ died, he says, you died. Just as Christ lives unto God in his resurrection, so you are to live unto God. So if that's true, let's just dwell for a moment on what Christ's life is like in this moment and frankly all moments for that matter. In other words, for what purpose did God raise Christ from the dead? I won't, I'm not even going to come close to answering that whole question. There's lots of reasons, but I'm only going to name a few. We know from Acts 1 that Christ had to ascend so that he could send the Spirit to dwell in his people. What is the purpose of the Spirit? Well, remember, way back, we, we met the Spirit on the very first page of the scripture. The Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation the chaotic waters. And his role on that page, in that story, was this, to transform created space into covenant space. That was the role of the Spirit. And that is precisely what he is doing today. So from his heavenly throne, Christ sent the spirit and through his spirit, even today, Christ is transforming created space and created people into covenant space and covenant people. Yes? Secondly, what does Christ do? What is he doing right now? Well, we know from the letter to the Hebrews that in his ascended state, Christ sits upon a throne of grace and he hears the prayers of his people. He receives our um, broken and and half-hearted and weak intercessions and turns them into something beautiful and presents them to the Father. Like we barely know what to pray. The Spirit groans from within us, Paul teaches us. And the Spirit groans according to the will of God. And these groans and petitions are received by Christ and then presented to the Father as if they were His. What else is Christ doing right now? Third, we know from Luke's Gospel where he recounts the Last Supper that Christ is longing for the arrival of the kingdom of God, for, this, for the age to come to arrive in its fullness. Remember, he said, as they were sitting, eating this meal, actually, oh, I long to eat this with you, to drink this with you in the kingdom of God. Fourthly, what is Christ doing today? We're taught in Ephesians 2 that Christ is at work through the Spirit, building his people into a dwelling place for God. And there's more that I could say, but... All of those four things taken together basically is to say this. Christ was raised in order that he might attend to his father's will and execute it on the earth. And that is the totality of his life in this moment and every moment that preceded this moment and every moment that will come after this moment. Paul says to us, You, too, must consider yourselves alive to God. These are all the ways that Christ is alive to God. You, too, must consider yourselves alive to God. Now, to be clear, like, he's not saying that we take up the mantle that belongs to Christ. Like, we don't send the Spirit to anyone. We don't sit upon Christ's throne in order to hear the prayers of the saints, but the equivalence cannot be denied the, — the equivalence that Paul is drawing cannot be denied — that we were raised with Christ to newness of life, and in him we attend to the will of God in this age. We are to go out announcing the gospel of the kingdom of God and transforming creative space into covenant space. We, we are to cultivate that longing for the kingdom of God inside of our hearts. And by the way, the biblical word for that is hope. we to cultivate that hope. And again, we're not the origin of this work. I'm not saying that. This is the Father's work. This is Christ's work. This is the Spirit's work. But even so, though we are not the origin of this work, Christ has made us instruments of this work. And so in light of all of that, can you begin to see why Paul is arguing with all of his might that sin has no place in the life of one who has been raised with Christ? Can you begin to see why Paul is so very grieved at the indwelling sin that hinders his ability to carry out the purpose of his new life in Christ? I think it's plain. And that brings us to our last point. We've seen Paul arguing with us that we have died to sin, that we've been raised with Christ to newness of life. Now, number three, let us live our lives in accordance with those realities. Paul gets very practical with us in the text that I read at the beginning, verses 12 through 14. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. (laughs) So first, Paul grabs us by the shoulders, as it were, and does his best to remind us of what is true of our lives in Christ. Sin has no dominion. It's a word for, like, ruling power. Sin has no dominion in your life. You are ruled by grace, not by sin. And why is Paul being so forceful with us? Because that truth is not easy to believe. Sin very much feels like it has dominion in our lives. It is constantly playing on our passions and our desires, and it's trying to convince us to obey its will. But Paul is clear. While sin does indeed dwell in us until the resurrection, it, listen, it can only persuade us, not command us. Sin has no dominion is what he's saying. That's how we must think of sin in the life of a believer. It has persuasive power, but not commanding power. It reminds me of uh, Loki in the Marvel movies. We've been watching these. Every time he finds himself stripped of power, which is surprisingly often, he, he resorts to bargaining and persuasion. Like, I know you're about to lock me up or kill me or whatever, but wait, I can help you achieve your goals. And he's very persuasive. It works. I think in every movie it works. And sin does the same thing with us in this age. Like, I know you have been instructed to dissociate with me, to cut all ties, that you have died to me. I know you've been instructed to forsake me, or even horror of horrors, to mortify or kill me, but I can help you. I can help you with your goals, if only you say yes. Now, I'm not gonna deny that the persuasion and passion from sin is very powerful. But the point that Paul is making here is that it is not ultimately powerful. And so how are we to live? Well, Paul tells us that we are to present our bodies, our members as instruments of righteousness. And of course, that's what Christ is doing every moment of his life. And the very best expression that I know that explains this that comes from the scriptures is a phrase that we have heard, encountered, that we've encountered over and over again throughout our time at reading through the scriptures. And it really comes down to three words. And those three words are this Here I am. That's it. Here I am. How are we to present our members to God? Here I am. Do you remember when God was calling Samuel in the night? What was his response? Here I am. Do you remember when God called Isaiah into his throne room in that magnificent vision in Isaiah chapter 6? What, what did Isaiah say? Here I am. He said other things, but he said, here I am. This, to me, is the greatest practical expression of what Paul is asking us to do here. Every morning, we come to God. We present our members to him as instruments of righteousness and say, here I am. Send me. Every afternoon... We come before God. We present our members to him, our bodies, our minds, our mouths, our eyes, everything. We present ourselves to him and say, here I am, send me. Every night as we drift into sleep, we present ourselves to him and we say, in Christ I have died, in Christ I have risen, here I am. Send me to do your will. Recently I was reading, um, still reading, this marvelous book. Um, by French writer Georges Bernanos and uh, it's called Diary of a Country Priest and a single phrase shook me like an explosion that, that in my mind explains all of what I've just said here. I don't know if it will for you but just listen with me. He just says for the master whom we serve not only judges our life, but shares it. I don't know if it strikes you with the same weight that it struck me, but the master whom we serve not only judges our life, but shares it. Beyond all our reckoning, Christ has set our lives apart to share them with the world. Our lives are the means of his grace to a world that is languishing under the effects of the fall. Our lives are holy in his sight and therefore vessels of his grace to bring his presence to bear in this age. And so every morning, every afternoon, every night, every moment in between, we come to him and we say, Here I am. Send me. How will you share my life with the world? The life that you have created. The life that mirrors the newness of life that Christ has. The resurrected life that is imbued with the power of the Spirit and the character of the age to come. How will you share it with the world? You know what the biblical word for that is? Sanctification. It's not just behaving right. It's a consecrated life, a life set apart to be shared with this world. Paul says it in verse 19 of chapter 6. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just as Christ took bread and raised it to heaven and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. So he takes our lives and he blesses them in his own death and resurrection, breaks them and shares them with the world as instruments of righteousness. And I don't know about you, but if that's the purpose of our lives, that makes me want to forsake all the persuasive power that sin has over me. We know, I mean, we've lived long enough. We know that that is not always so. We often find ourselves at home in sin. We often find that its logic makes more sense to us than the logic of the kingdom of God. And with Paul, we groan, who will deliver me from this body? And he has an answer in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, We will often fail. We will often fall into sin in this age. And it will grieve us deeply. But Christ has destroyed all condemnation for those failures. So what else can we do with these lives of ours? These fleeting, momentary lives. Except come before the face of God each day. And say, here I am. Send me. You have purposes, you must send me. Share my life according to your purposes in this world. And now as we come to this table, which is a table of sanctification, we come to eat and drink because Christ has set us apart and made us holy. It's here each week that Christ not only takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to us, but is at this table that as we share this meal with, with Christ, he takes our lives and blesses them and breaks them and gives them to the world. So as you come to this meal, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Say to him, here I am, share me with the world. Share the life you have given me. With the world and you know what it's a prayer he will always answer because that is his will so let us pray our father in heaven how grateful we are <laughs> we are mere recipients of this unfathomable grace You have seen fit to ride us into this unfolding drama of redemption. When we did nothing to earn it, we did nothing to deserve it, and yet you have given us everything at great cost to yourself. And so we are here, and all we do is say thank you. So would you grant us the grace to see where this world needs us, where you intend to share us With this world, and will you give us the grace to be instruments of righteousness in a world that so desperately needs the grace of God? And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, this meal is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.